0: Oh dear. <sighs> hey guys, and welcome to the Coffee and Coding Podcast, the show where we discuss everything there is to know about app development. I'm your host Rob Jay, and in today's episode, I speak with app development veteran Brian Plummer over the past 10 years brian's worked with startups he's helped rebuild the new york times app from scratch he's worked with nike and he's currently a senior developer at okcupid we talk about what it was like developing mobile apps in 2010 what it's like working for a big corporation like the new york times different approaches to code reviews testing using fakes versus mocks the benefits of graphql and much much more now on to the show So before we get into today's episode, a little housekeeping. Firstly, there is now a coffee and coding Slack channel. Slack channel? I think the official term is workspace. But either way, there is now a coffee and coding Slack. So if you're interested in chatting with like-minded developers or fellow listeners or me, You can join the Slack at coffeeencodingpod.com slash Slack. There's actually a few members in there already, so that's pretty exciting. So yeah, if, if you're interested, check that out. Secondly, someone recently hit me up on LinkedIn to ask me about talking to someone about Internet of Things, IoT. So I did a little research, and in a couple of weeks' time, I should be having a chat with a guest who knows all about IoT assuming that the conversation comes off but we've been talking back and forth um so i think it's definitely going to happen and it got me thinking so if you have a topic you'd like me to dig into or a specific guest that you'd like to hear on the show let me know and i'll see if i can make it happen the best places to hit me up for that would be either linkedin tweet me I'm not very active on Twitter, but I'm very observant on Twitter. So if you want to tweet me or hashtag coffee encoding and I'll find it or you can join the Slack channel, which I just mentioned, coffeeencodingpod.com slash Slack. And you can let me know there as well. And finally, you can now find all the links to everything discussed in this podcast and every podcast at coffeeencodingpod.com slash episode whatever number that happens to be. So for this one, coffee slash episode twelve. Now on to my conversation with Brian So I guess the first thing is thank you very much for agreeing to be on the show. I've been looking for you LinkedIn and so you have a ton of experience. Like you've been doing Android since 2010 I think, right? That's correct. Yeah, which is even before me and I thought I was like pretty long in the tooth with Android. So And then I've seen that you've done like a bunch of talks and you write articles. And so there's tons of stuff to dig into. But I guess the first thing that I'm kind of interested in is how did you get your start in development and how did you get into Android development? And then following on from that, what was it like getting into Android development in 2010? Because that was super early, right? That was like the start of mobile apps taking off.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. That's a really great question. I um, I got started in development uh, when I was in university and I started off uh, being an industrial engineer and I took a beginning computer class that all the engineers had to take and um, I really enjoyed it. And there was going to be an additional class, a second class where they were going to teach us Java and I was really excited and I wanted to, uh, to take it. Uh, you had to have a declared major and at that time I was undecided engineering and um, as a little bit of a lark. I um, didn't know where the industrial engineering building was, but I knew where the College of Computer was so I figured I'll just go and declare computer science. I'll change it later, and uh, and it kind of really stuck. I uh, took this class on uh, Java and I really enjoyed it. And I found myself just possessed. I would walk around campus um, thinking about these programming problems, and I enjoyed it. And and of course I'd get my grade card, and I'd kind of be you know reflective of that. You know the programming class would have an A, and you know the other grades weren't, weren't, <laughs> weren't even close to that. And, and so I thought you know I really like this. You know I can't imagine doing anything else, and I really enjoyed it. And um, I lived in Atlanta. I'm from Atlanta originally, and I was working uh, as a web developer for at and when I graduated. Um, I had the opportunity to move to New York, and at that time I was kind of just getting tired of, um, or I wasn't enjoying the, the web development, uh, at least the stack that we were using. And at that time I just got the uh, the brand new Android phone, the Nexus one, I want to say, and it felt like that was the way of the future. It felt like making apps, putting apps on the app store and writing applications for these mobile devices, it just seemed really exciting and new and fresh. And even uh, starting in the Android development in 2010, it, it still felt like the space was permeated with that. You know, uh, these developers, indie developers, putting apps out there, getting famous, or making money, or um, it just seemed like there was um, a lot of room to do things, and to learn things, and to make a big impact, and uh, it just felt really new and shiny, even though maybe the tooling wasn't quite there, or there wasn't a, a large amount of these libraries that we have today, uh, it still was really exciting and it felt like, you know, you're on the the cutting edge of something. And and that's what really one of the things that really, you know, got me um, into mobile development and it's kind of kept me in mobile development as well. Uh, I really enjoy the problems that we face and I really like it.
0: Okay, awesome. So, In terms of from where you started to today, how, I mean, I I think I know the answer, but it's interesting because, like I said, you were in it before me. And I remember when I got into Android, we were still using Eclipse and Eclipse was, I remember it just being terrible. But um, what was it like, I guess, from like when you started Android development and how different was it building for those early versions as opposed to now,
1: I want to say um, one of the things that really attracted me to it was at least the openness of the platform. I uh, was a Linux user for a really long time and I was interested maybe in iOS development for a brief second, but then I realized you had to have a Mac and at the time you had to pay them $100 for Xcode. Xcode wasn't free, you know, on top of the 25 bucks, And, you know, and I could download Eclipse and run an emulator on my, you know, my Linux box and have it just all work. So, and I was a really big open source advocate. And so, and I still believe that open source really helps us and solves a lot of our problems. So even though, talking to more about your question, it was a little frustrating, it was a little difficult. You know, we had to do a lot of stuff by hand. You know, for example, like image loading and image processing. You know, you'd have to use an HTTP connection and get the bitmap and, you know, and make sure that's appropriate size and scale it before, you know, you pull it up from disk and all this song and dance. And it seemed a little... um. Cumbersome in a way, but uh, just that instant gratification that we as developers feel—you know, you, you, you hit that button, you have the code deployed, and you see it on the device, and it suddenly makes it all worthwhile. But uh, it, it was a little difficult, and uh, you know, a lot of people would kind of roll their own threading libraries, you know, for threading management, you know, image management, and so it was—you um, know—it was a little rough. And you know, I was really happy when Android Studio came along, and uh, you know, IntelliJ makes a really great product. In fact, that was. Um, One of the things when I came to the city, I was using Eclipse initially, and uh, I got turned on to IntelliJ, and I really liked it. And so when uh, they came out with Android Studio, it wasn't that much of a stretch for me to, to start using that.
0: But really for you, at the start, it's kind of like inventing the wheel, right? Because like you said, back then you had you had to do everything yourself. Like now there's a go-to library. If you want to do networking, use Retrofit or like maybe use Volley or whatever. But there's, there's go-to. And back then, I suppose it was a bit of Wild West. You had to roll your own for a lot of things.
1: It kind of felt like a miracle worker in a way. You know, you'd have to, uh, uh, you know, Google for answers, you know, Stack Overflow. You would have a bunch of different options. You'd kind of have to see what would work and then... Uh, which one of those seemed the less hacky and, uh, you know, it just really seemed like you were kind of working magic in a way. And sometimes that was fun, and sometimes, you know, when things didn't work out so good, it was, you know, pretty difficult.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. Now it's just, you can just Google it and there's a tutorial showing you how to do exactly what you want to do. So, I also wanted to touch on a little bit. You worked at TouchLab, which I assume was like your first kind of Android gig, right? And then since then, you know, you've worked at New York Times, you work for Nike, you're at ok- OKCupid now. But I'm, I'm kind of interested in what was kind of how did you find the experience working at TouchLab, which is like a mobile development studio, right? As opposed to where you work now, which is like you've worked for big corporations. I imagine it's it's very different.
1: Yeah, it absolutely is. It's very different. Uh, when I came to the city and I went to, um, an Android meetup here, and actually I'm a big proponent of the meetups, but I was actually sitting next to a person and I said, you know, hey, I'm, uh, looking for a job. I'm new to town. And it turned out to be Kevin Galligan and he is the, uh, the owner of TouchLab. And he says, oh, why don't you, uh, you know, talk to me and give me a code sample and you know, maybe come work for me. And, uh, so I started working for him and, um, it was really interesting doing consulting. You know, there's good and there's bad. But one of the things I really liked about it is uh, you're habituated to a bunch of different code bases. And you get experience looking at different code bases. And I thought that was really cool. And not only that, uh, you know, as soon as you kind of get tired of a project, you would typically kind of roll off one and on to the next one. So I really kind of liked that pacing of it too. Some of the things I really enjoyed about it too was uh I would typically interface with a customer or even go and be on site with a customer too. So it really taught me how to um you know present myself to prospective customers or also talk about technical things to customers and it really helped me um I guess refine that ability. At the time I want to say we were the uh Touch Lab was the only Android only consulting shop here in the city. So that was kind of cool. You know we were Android only so that was a, a good feeling to do that.
0: The stuff that you were developing, was it Android-only apps, or were people splitting essentially their budget between you guys and then an iOS-only studio?
1: So our, our basic bread and butter were um, companies that had already had an iOS app, and then you know maybe a year or so later, once they uh, got the funding or had the market share, then they would engage us and say, okay, we need an Android app now. A lot of the target audience for these startups or people who need an app were you know Americans and they're overwhelmingly you know iPhone users or even New Yorkers you know were overly iPhone users. So, so that was our big bread and butter, and it was kind of neat. You'd be given a uh, I guess the iOS source code and say, okay, make a clone of this. You know, for better or for worse. But one of the cool things about it was was um, I at least learned how to use Xcode. I at least. Was able to dig around through Objective C, uh, you know, kind of an autonomous fashion to where someone could kind of give me an app or some specs and say, okay, you know, kind of make an Android y version of this. And I thought that was, um, you know, really neat as well. It kind of helped me uh, be a more well rounded developer as well.
0: Yeah. See, I I used to get that when I started the early days of development. And I always used to be like, I don't understand Objective-C. Can you just give me screenshots and like a really rough spec and I can do exactly what you want? But if you gave me an Xcode project, I'll just be like, no idea. So then I guess the question is, if you're allowed to talk about it, kind of what did you work on at the New York Times and kind of what was... It like working there? And I guess I ask mostly because most of the companies that I've worked for are startups or, you know, small freelance projects, right? So, you know, you build an MVP or you build a product, whereas the New York Times is like, it's this big thing. And in my head, it's always like, imagine if I worked at a big company like that and I was the person that introduced the bug that made every single user's device crash because it happens, right? And, it, and it's not like you've got one user, it's like you've got millions of users. So um what was your experience like working there and how did you find that?
1: Just like any large corporations, you know, it had its issues, uh, you know, some some bureaucracy, but it was very, very progressive, and I, I really enjoyed my time there. I... I would tell people that it's a lot like high school versus university. It seems like high school people are there because they have to be there, and university people are there because they want to be there. And at least that's how it felt at uh, the Times. A lot of people that were there really enjoyed working there, and they enjoyed uh, the mission that the New York Times does and, and what we are furthering. And that that's kind of what it felt like, too. It felt like we were making a positive change for the better in the world. And that's something I really uh, liked. You know, as you mentioned, uh, going from a start up to a big company. Um, One of the interesting things about it is, you know, when you're at a small company, you typically wear a bunch of uh, hats. And, you know, when you go to a larger corporation, you know, the hats are kind of spread around. Uh, You know, there's a team that does quality control. There's a team that does performance monitoring. There's a team that does releasing. And so that was kind of interesting to be in a situation where, you know, suddenly you're just kind of focused on pure development. And um, when I started, they they had an application that had been around for maybe three or four years. Uh, All my colleagues uh, were relatively new. The yeah. No one understood the application, and if something would break and we'd fix it, it would cause more bugs. And it was from the uh, the older days of uh, Android where there's a lot of hand-rolled libraries built into it, you know, uh, image management, thread pooling, some of the stuff I mentioned before. So uh, I had a really good opportunity to rewrite the application and start from scratch. And I was a part of the, a small team that did that, and it was really great. And it was really nice to work on an application and put it out there and to know that, you know, you're furthering democracy you know that you know hundreds of thousands of people will be using it to you know to to get the news. You know, using your app to to get the news, and I thought that was really nice. Yeah, and it felt like I, I had a responsibility to try to make it you know as performant and as you know as nice as I could.
0: That's nice. I guess that's a really good way to look at it because it's like your your I I don't know what the right word is, but there's a lot of times where you work on stuff, and you're like, it's cool, but it's not important. It's just, you know, something that's cool and it's going to give someone joy, but you're not going to change anything long term. And then I guess when you look at it the way that you look at it, that's that's a pretty nice way to look at things.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that was one of the the great, as I call it, intangibles that they offered is, um, is that feel good feeling that we're doing something.
0: So one of the things that I wanted to ask about, well, there's a couple of things, but I guess the first one is before we get into like GQL. And I know you did a talk on code reviews and different things like that is so you've done a bunch of talks, right? And I've seen you done some at JoyCon, like a whole bunch of different places. So I guess the question is how and why did you start giving talks? And then how did you get yourself onto big events? Like JoyCon in the Android world is a big event. So like, how, how does that kind of work?
1: It's a really great question. I um, It's one of those deals. Uh, if you would have told me that, you know, you, you would enjoy giving talks, you know, 10 years ago, I, I wouldn't have believed you. Um, and I, I think that's how the majority of us feel. You know, we feel scared. We feel really nervous about setting up and talking. I still get nervous and scared setting up and talking. And, and the real motivator here is typically, you know, we have colleagues or people that we look up to uh, who push us, who push us in good direction and provide positive encouragement for us. And, you know, I had someone like that in my life who, you know, provided positive encouragement. Hey, why don't you try to give a talk? And, and I did. And, you know, as most people kind of suggest uh, is if you are interested in talking or at least at a big conference, uh, you know, to so start at a meeting meetup. And that's kind of what I did. And uh, I was really scared and nervous uh, the very first talk I gave. And I felt like it did horrible. Even the second talk I think I gave, I even had like a joke slide in it. And it uh, came up to the slide and like no one laughed. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so, but I found that I enjoyed it. Not only I enjoyed it, but it felt like I... um, you know, was making a difference, or at least communicating ideas and, and helping people. And that was kind of one of the big motivating factors for me, uh, at least one of the things that really grabbed me for it. So after, as I mentioned before, I was a big proponent of the meetup, and I've been a very active member of the New York meetup since I've actually moved to the city. So I've been going like 10 years. And uh, the person who runs the meetup also happens to run DroidCon, Kevin Galligan as well. So after speaking at the meetup, you know, there was some encouragement to you know throw my hat into the DroidCon as well, and I did. So I gave that a try, and uh, and I really enjoyed that as well. And I think you know, uh, uh, you know, submitting multiple talks. These conferences always really helped, you know, being thorough. You know, if you get rejected, that's okay too. You know, I've applied to so many talks that I've gotten, you know, rejected from. You know, for everyone that I've applied to, there's probably like a couple, uh, you know, that I didn't make it. And I would suggest that anyone who who even remotely wants to talk, you absolutely should. You know, in addition to to the fear, a lot of people have this mindset that, oh, what am I going to contribute? Or or what, I don't really have anything to say, or, or, you know, I... Don't have anything additional to talk about that. And that's not true. Even our personal uh, experience can lend a lot to a certain type of problem. And even though maybe someone else has talked about that problem, it's not the same talk as if you gave it. Because you are going to be able to give your own uh, outlook and your own solutions uh, and your own guidance to it. So I tell others, uh, you know, if you're even remotely interested, you know, go for it. You know, try to find someone to to help you uh, practice your talks with. Start at the meetups. And, you know, and and like I said, the the scariness and the fear kind of never goes away, but it gets better. And uh, at the end of the day, you know, you're helping others and that's always good.
0: A hundred percent. Yeah, I feel like the... The idea that you are not, you don't have things to contribute, it's always a little bit of kind of imposter syndrome because, you know, like I think I'm a fairly good developer, but I know there's a million that are better than me. So why should I be talking or why should I be doing something when somebody else should be? But it's like you said, your perspective is always different. So even if you give the exact same talk, somebody might get something from something you say and they might not get it from somebody else delivering the same information. So do you, do you remember what your first uh meetup talk was?
1: yes and and i think i was wrong it had to do with a uh, custom scaling of images and i uh and for some reason i'd overlooked the uh, image view adjust view bounds or something and i, I was uh, doing it myself and i was talking about it or maybe it was going with the uh the 555 image type to save space but it was a bad idea and it causes banding and it's horrible okay okay,
0: okay, okay. okay so you've learned from those experiences i guess i
1: just want to mention something else too you know i've been horribly wrong a good number of times in my life and i'm sure i'm going to be horribly wrong in the future and and it's you know it's uh it's it's unfortunate when that happens but all we can do is to say you know uh to say we're wrong and you know move on with our life and you know learn our lesson so yeah that's
0: part of the learning experience right it's, it's, it's not any different from when you're a junior developer and if you were to look at the code you wrote 10 years ago now you'd be like oh my god why did I do this so you know this this is how we learn
1: lately one of the things I've really uh, enjoyed uh, is just the power of abstraction and I've really started to really enjoy uh, fakes and there's a talk about yeah, fakes s- versus
0: I s- mocks I saw you was it an article that you wrote right so I guess that's a good question so what what is your thoughts on fakes versus mocks
1: you know mocks maybe have their place but I think you know fakes are really awesome I Working in a current code base, when I started, they had an issue of statics and overuse of statics. Uh, And when I mean statics, I mean static constructs that were stateful, you know, that would hit the network. And, of course, you know, that's not really a good idea. So I've been really, you know, hitting the head of, uh, you know, abstraction and uh, espousing that. So I've just found it really, really easy, uh, at least from a unit test, just how easy it is to use fakes. Uh, And I'm sure, you know, Makito and PowerMock has its places, but we've all, like, spent time on uh, um, you know, the argument matchers in Makito trying to get stuff to work, uh, you know, stubbing out, I guess, the static rules for things. And it's just really difficult. And sometimes, uh, one example, uh, we had a failing test uh, a few months back, or a flaky test, actually. Flaky. flaky yeah, test. yeah, yeah, i Yeah. And, uh, you know, digging a little deeper, it turned out it was because we hadn't considered time as a dependency. And it was a really great learning lesson because I, I showed the team that uh, not only, you know, tests are flaky for a reason, but you can even... Take time as a dependency and abstract it and make it independent on, make it independent of the machine that it's running on, you know, just by using, uh, an interface and an abstraction instead of calling system.currentTime, you know, milliseconds. And so I've just been really impressed personally with just the power of abstraction and,
0: uh, what it gives us. That's really interesting because I've mostly, well, I mean, primarily for testing i've always worked with mocks which is like it's fine it's like it's like you said it, i don't know the time difference it probably takes longer because you're not totally in control of what's going on and then you miss out like oh i didn't return this value and i didn't return this value but have have you worked with mock i don't know how you're supposed to say it by m-o-c-k-k because i really like that over moquito it's, it's much much nicer
1: yeah, it is, and I've used it a little bit, and it is really a great library, and I think uh, it is definitely an improvement over the uh, the older one. Uh, you know, I, I think um, the questions we have to ask ourselves, uh, at least when using some of these, and again, you know, I'm not you know anti uh, mocking. I, I just think that we should ask ourselves these questions. You know, if we're in the position of having to mock these static things, you know, is that a code smell? You know, I think, you know, I think you know, with any great power, there's lots of you know some responsibility, and I think uh, you know, and it's a very very powerful tool, and of course it has its place but I think you know we should also be asking you know are we overusing some of the aspects of this
0: yeah I think I think to your point if you have to mock statics probably it's the code smell like there's very few scenarios where it wouldn't be I mean the only times I can think is if it's not is when it's things that are out of your control where you didn't you didn't code the static and then you have to and then mock comes into play but then it gets super confusing as well because that's how you end up with flaky tests right whereas like you've written the tests and the mocks look perfect but for whatever reason and you don't know why they don't work But you don't know that they don't work. So then it just takes. Well, I suppose if you're doing fakes, then you know exactly what's happening because you wrote the code. So. So I wanted to ask about the talk that you gave about GQL, which was basically, I guess, what are your thoughts on it? Because I've only recently started working with GQL. And, you know, I think it's pretty cool and I can definitely see the benefits for it. So I guess what's your thoughts on GQL as a whole and kind of where it fits into app development? And then I guess, where do you see it going? Because it seems like it's potentially the future, but, you know, there's always a new thing. So w- what do you think?
1: My first experience with the GraphQL was probably about uh, four or five years ago when I was at uh, New York Times when the Apollo was first starting to make it it's a client, and we first started checking it out, and um, we would really stress test it and really use it, and this was uh, before it really became uh, feature-rich like it is today, or at least I think it's feature-rich. So I've kind of been messing around with it for four or five years at this point. I've had some jobs where I haven't really used it Some or have. And uh, when it was initially pitched to us, or when I initially heard, it, it was definitely had that that salesy kind of a feel like it's going to solve all of our problems. We're not going to need rest anymore. It's going to make um, you know our lives as developers a lot easier. And I think some of that's true. I, d- I don't know if it's all completely true. I think the Apollo client is actually very feature-ish. And there's a lot of cool stuff in it that you get for free. Compile time validation, uh, the reflection-free parsing, which is really awesome. Has a really cool cache, and normalized cache, and a lot of neat stuff kind of built into it. Um, you know, as far as the specification goes, it's kind of debatable. And, you know, and after using it all this time, uh, there's some things I like, some things I don't. A lot of times, I guess, it seems like the majority maybe, or I guess the best use case for it, is maybe for open organizations who have a lot of data and they want people just to be able to hit their endpoints and just... Do queries. So with private companies, it's a little bit more constrained. You typically would have a GraphQL instance, and then you typically have to jump through hoops to kind of make it secure. Uh, so much so to where maybe you have allow list and blocking list for certain types of queries. And, you know, as part of our process, maybe, you know, we, we would write a new query, but for that to even work in production, it has to, you know, go through some sort of process to be allowed. And, you know, that's just another hoop. And uh, I guess the big proponents of uh, the GraphQL have typically been uh, the server developers, at least in my experience, has typically come from the server side. Uh, For better or for worse, uh, you know, the server developers really love it and they typically, you know, want to push it on us. So that's been kind of an interesting observation. Uh, You know, does it solve all of our problems? You know, I'm not really sure. Uh, You know, I still like REST. I still use REST for some things and REST has its place you know, and I think it just really depends upon the teams that use it and how much active development is going, you know, into these systems. You know, if you have a team that's really focused on the rest endpoints, you know, if it's not broke, you know, why fix it?
0: I think that's fair. From a mobile perspective, what do you think is the coolest thing that you could do with the GraphQL client? Because some of the stuff I've seen is like the caching is cool. You get that for free. I feel like if you cache a list and then you just want to retrieve one item from that list from the cache, the documentation for that doesn't seem great. And at least from what I I found. So it's one of those you have to kind of trial and error. But that's cool. I mean, I guess if if you was going to like super geek out and, and try and sell it to a mobile developer, like what's the coolest thing that you could do?
1: compile time validation is really nice the fact that uh, using the caching can sort of almost replace your repository layer if you want uh, you know it can also respect the HTTP headers so if you have a really awesome back-end team uh, and you don't even want to uh, deal with the caching on the client then you know the back-end team can can handle the, the HTTP caching portion portion of it for you and uh, from a development standpoint they're they're really responsible and uh, I'm
0: responsive Responsive, yeah,
1: and you know it's just a really you know active development, and uh, the developers that work on it are really uh, responsive and approachable, and they seem like they they really enjoy it. So I think it's a, a. tool that's really well maintained and that's very active uh, development you know i'm sorry i don't have anything like off the top of my head that's like super exciting that i can No, think that's, about that's it totally does. fine
0: to people that don't know gql the three things that you just listed is just going to blow their mind so then i wanted to touch on one other thing which you talked about because i was watching this today and you gave a talk about code reviews which i thought was super interesting and i kind of just want to get i guess like the cliff notes of your opinion on code reviews and kind of advice Yeah, I guess advice that you could give to developers that aren't super familiar or aren't super confident with them, because you know I've worked at a lot of companies that do code reviews. In my opinion, well, and then a lot of them where a code review isn't a code review. Somebody just ticks it and says it compiles, and off you go. And then you've got other places where people are super picky, and they're like, "Oh, there's a space here. You need to get rid of this space. You should, you shouldn't do this. You should do this." And they don't actually want to change the code. They just want it to be as if they wrote it themselves. So. What's your yeah? I guess what's your thoughts on that, and what would be your advice or feedback to people that aren't familiar or that are looking to improve the way they do code reviews?
1: Right on. I I really enjoy reviewing code just for the sole reason that it's almost like an algorithmic baby for me. You know, I'm to this point now where kids are cute, but I still don't really want one, and it's an opportunity to hold a child for a few minutes until I get tired of it and I can give it to (laughs) someone else. You know. and I really enjoy reviewing code, and, and I have for the longest time, and I couldn't figure out. Um, it seemed like that was a little bit unusual with my peers. And not only that, I if I personally have a hard time. You know, it's all really difficult for us to not only to receive feedback, but also to give appropriate feedback. And I think, uh, you know, at the end of the day, you know, we're all people, you know, with feelings, and, you know, there's a human element to it as well. And, you know, and as you kind of mentioned, it, it's not always necessarily about being right or making the code you know look like you've written it. So one of the things that I, I really like to do, or at least I like to believe in, is identifying you know what's a cardinal sin and what isn't. You know, if a cardinal sin is something that's um, you know obviously very wrong, it's something that would cause the app to crash. Uh, you know, it's something that would be uh, a detriment to the user. And then kind of everything else that's not a cardinal sin is kind of almost a nitpick in a way. And I think framing this dialogue, this conversation, in such a way to where you know you're asking someone, not, not necessarily telling them, but, you know, asking them, you know, could you consider doing this or consider doing that? Uh, back to the cardinal sense. So realizing that, you know, some of this matters and some of it doesn't it really, really helps give perspective to the review process. And one of the things I like to do personally is you know, identify that, but also not to be oppressive and to communicate that and say, Hey, you know, I noticed this thing. Have you considered it doing this way or not? If you don't feel like it, that that's okay. You can take care of it later. Not today. And I, and I think that's a very important uh, idea is to not be oppressive and to try to understand what we want to accomplish. And that is, you know, making code that doesn't have any of these cardinal sins and everything else can kind of slide. Something I've been trying to get at least better about recently, uh, maybe leading more by example.
0: I, I was going to ask, so in terms of cardinal sins, are they your cardinal sins or are they cardinal sins that are decided by the team, for example?
1: I think maybe... Um more of a looser definition and maybe what I have in my head would be a cardinal sin. You know, something that would maybe, again, be a detriment to a a user using the product or maybe would introduce a crash or, you know, something that was really, really obviously wrong that should be fixed.
0: So then I guess hypothetical question. So let's say I issue you a pull request and I've got if else this, if else that, if else whatever. And the conditions inside those if statements are like, something and something and not something else right so in my head or at least if i was actually going to write that code those conditions would be one method that returns a boolean that says you know if this thing is true then you can do this right and i probably also wouldn't do if else i'd do a switch or i'd do a a when statement if we're talking about kotlin or whatever so let's say i submitted that pull request to you what would be the feedback that you would give to me
1: um, I would say uh, consider approaching this with idiomatic Kotlin. Here's an example. You know, if um, if you're stressed today, don't worry about it. This is a nitpick. If you just want to merge it, go for it. Uh, if you want to correct it that that's cool too
0: okay cool so you, so you'd basically say like the code is valid so it's good to go but if you want to make it nicer or ma- more maintainable or if you just want to f- see a different way to do it that's cleaner you could do this it. but it's not a forceful request changes please change it to this
1: correct and, and i think a lot of times like a style guide really helps us in these situations you know i think Uh, In that way, the rules don't seem arbitrary to people, and I think that's one of the other issues, too, is is when people say, oh, well, you should be doing it like this. It's like, you know, why, you know, and I think, you know, coming together as a team and, you know, writing some, um, uh, layer above the syntax, uh, is typically kind of helpful, at least as, as some guiding posts for us as developers. I also think, uh, you know, syntax, um, stuff shouldn't really be a part of uh, the review process as well. That's one of those things that really can be automated and, uh, you know, uh, pointing out, Hey, you know, you got this extra space here or, you know, Hey, you know, I, I think those sorts of things can be, you know, automated away and, you know, relieve us of the burden of that during the code review
0: okay okay awesome okay all right so i've got a cut Well, i've got two questions left i think two questions i don't know we'll count them when we're done so the first thing that i want to ask is what machine do you use to work from
1: it's a, a company issued macbook laptop i mentioned i'm a big fan of um linux unfortunately though uh a few drops back someone gave me a macbook air and the form factor was so nice that <laughs> uh i haven't used linux in a while and being a new york city person i don't have a lot of room in my tiny apartment for other computers so. gotcha
0: gotcha okay cool all right that's fair enough i i was i was thinking you might say linux because you mentioned it but if somebody gave me a free mac i might use it as well so and then the the other question that i ask everybody which i'm interested to hear your opinion on is what do you think separates an okay developer from a great developer oh,
1: that's a really great Great question. I think the desire to maybe uh, help and elevate others is a really big difference. I think someone who's a really accomplished person and they're uh, a really great coder, You know, if they're doing this in a vacuum, then they're just a really good coder. I think uh, most of the great software developers that I've interacted with have really cared about uh, helping out their teammates, cared about helping out their peers. And I think that's uh, really infectious. And I think um, helping others out and uh, doing that is a really big difference learning those skills you don't have to be a people person you don't have to be charismatic to do this you just have to have a willingness and a desire to to help and uh, make things better and i'm a big believer in um in that And I think, you know, by helping others, uh, we also, the knowledge gets solidified in our head, but, uh, that makes us, that's what makes
0: a great developer in my mind. Awesome. That's a really good answer. And then I guess the last question is where would you like people to find you? Where can I direct them to GitHub, LinkedIn, all that good stuff? Uh,
1: Twitter, Twitter would be good. Uh, my plumber makes handle and, uh, mostly for, for Android facing stuff. So,
0: big thanks to today's guest brian Plummer. you can find brian on linkedin you can find links to his talks and articles at coffeeencodingpod.com episode 12 and you can connect with him on twitter at PlummerMakes. as always you can find everything we talked about in this episode in the show notes if you like the show tell a friend and don't forget to subscribe and leave us a five-star rating it's much appreciated and if you really like the show you can support it with a coffee donation at coffeeandcodingpodcom slash buy me coffee caffeine is literally what fuels this podcast if you'd like to connect with like-minded developers you can do so in our slack channel and finally you can follow me on your favorite social media platform at low carb You can find all the links to everything I've just said in the show notes or at coffeeencodingpod.com. Thank you for listening and I'll catch you on the next episode of the Coffee Encoding Podcast.